We're turning this morning to Genesis in the chapter 42. And my text for this morning can be found in the verse 36. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children? Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. And it's these words in particular. All these things are against me. All these things are against me. Well, let's unite together in prayer and look to the Lord for his blessing now upon the preaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are to thee for the word of God. We thank thee that the book we hold in front of us today is an inspired word, inspired by thy Holy Spirit. We thank thee that it is infallible, that it can be trusted. Every word, every doctrine, every teaching we know is truth. And we thank thee that thy word is without error. We know, Father, that thou hast preserved thy word, and thou hast gifted it unto thy church, that all of Scripture is profitable for our souls today. But, Father, we need thy spirit to come and apply the word to our hearts. We need thee to be our teacher. Surely, Lord, thou hast a word for each of us today, for those on the mountaintop and those in the valley, for those near to thee and those afar off. Come, Father, break the bread of life before us this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob lived something of a roller coaster life. Before he was even born, he was something of a rascal. Him and his brother Esau were striving together in his mother's womb. As they grew up, he stole his birthright from his brother. He deceived his father into giving him the blessing that was meant for his brother. He had his brother make a vow that he was going to kill him. The end result was he had to flee from his parents and his homeland and go and live in a far country with his uncle Laban. Having been the one who tricked people himself, he soon found out what it was to be in the receiving end of trickery. For his uncle Laban tricked him, promising him one daughter and giving him another. The end result was instead of having one wife, he ended up with two and the, after that, he ended up with four. He took too many wives, and they ended up fighting with each other. A little time after leaving his uncle Laban and going uh, to live in the land of Canaan with his family, his daughter Dina ended up being defiled by a Hivite. And in retaliation, his son slaughtered the Hivites and murdered them all. So Jacob's life was not a simple life. If there were plenty of ups and downs, plenty of adventure and uh, plenty of encounters of the good and the bad. But in all this, especially the latter part of his life, Jacob has a special relationship with God. Remember, Jacob is a child of promise. God made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God has revealed himself to Jacob at Peniel. That vision that Jacob had of the latter 
to heaven and the angels ascending and descending, we believe was the moment of Jacob's conversion. That moment whenever God revealed himself to Jacob in a mighty way. For Jacob woke after that dream and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And yet for all those years that Jacob was living with Laban, we don't read too much of his relationship with God, but we know that there was still that special relationship. But whenever Jacob leaves Laban and he's making his way back to Esau, he meets God in a place called Peniel and he wrestles with him there. And in that place, God changes his name to Israel, which means a prince with God. And although Jacob was a man with many weaknesses, just like you and me, he was a man who had experienced the transforming power of God in his life. And what a comfort that was to him. But we come to a time in Jacob's life now when there's a lot of things happening. A lot of things that are going on that he's not quite in control of like he used to be. You know, the Bible doesn't paint a rosy picture of the Christian life. Some preachers do. They'll stand in the pulpit and say, if you come to Jesus, he'll make you healthy, wealthy and wise. And you'll not have a single uh, day of trouble in the rest of your life. And you're not too long out the church door before you meet trouble. But the Bible never paints a picture of the Christian life being easy or a flower-strewn pathway. Nor does the Bible make all of God's children out to be perfect. The Bible shows us the men of God, warts and all. Do you ever wonder why whenever men are writing epistles or writing the books of the Bible, they don't leave out the bad points of their life? They record them all. Moses wrote the book of Genesis and Exodus. And yet Moses records the time he killed a man. Surely if we were writing that and we wanted our name to be elevated, we would leave such things out. Well, the Bible shows what God's children are really like. We're not perfect. The Bible shows us the sinfulness of our hearts, the wickedness of our actions. The Bible details adultery, Murders, jealousy, covetousness, unbelief and rebellion against God. So the Christian is far from a perfect person. And we can look at Jacob in this situation here. And we can see that here's an example of a Christian struggling in his Christian walk. Struggling in his journey through life. Well as we look at this verse. I believe that's exactly what's happening with Jacob. He's struggling with everything that's going on. His favorite son Joseph is presumed dead for many years. Although he was really sold by his brothers as a slave. A terrible famine is now coming into the land that is threatening his life, the life of his children and his grandchildren. He sent his sons down to Egypt to buy food, not realizing they were buying it from Joseph. And they haven't all come back. Only nine of them have come back. Simeon has been left there. Because the prime minister of Egypt wants the other son, Benjamin, Joseph's real brother, to come down to Egypt also. And now Jacob, who's an older man, 130 years young, is now finding out that his sons are putting pressure on him, saying, let us take Benjamin down to Egypt. 
If we're able to take him down, we'll get Simeon back and we'll get more food. And Jacob is fearful. He thinks Joseph is dead. Simeon's locked up. And this strange man now wants all of his sons to go down there for the promise of more food. And we could maybe understand his apprehensions. He's not sure what's going on. He can't quite get his head round this whole situation. In a carnal sense he's thinking. One son's dead. Another son's locked up in prison. Somebody's looking all my sons to go down there. And if all my sons go down there. And they're all kept there. Or they're all murdered. I'll have nobody. And he's maybe in a spiritual sense thinking. How is the promise of God going to be fulfilled? How is God going to work through me. And make a great seed and a great nation? But let us ask the question. Why is Jacob fearful? Why is he full of these worries? Why is he full of anxiety and doubts here? Well the answer is. He has failed to remember. That God is in control. Of all these matters. He doesn't realise that. God has protected Joseph. From his evil brothers. He doesn't know that God has. Saved Joseph and elevated him. To the position of prime minister in Egypt. And he now has control over all the food. And he's in charge of all the supplies. Throughout the famine. He doesn't realise that God has prepared. Somebody to care for Jacob and his family. In this time of famine. And it's his own flesh and blood. Jacob is fearful here. Because he's looking at it through his eyes. And he can't see what is happening in the background. He can't see what God is doing behind the scenes. And in this he is failing to trust God. And he's failing to submit and surrender to God. And that's why he's fearful. A time of adversity has come upon Jacob. And how does he respond? He responds by calling out, all these things are against me. Jacob's 130 years old by now, or coming 130. He's been walking with God for many years. Should he maybe know better? You see, that's the problem we have, isn't it? We're expected to grow in the Christian grace. We're expected to grow in our faith. We're expected to grow in our trust and submission to God. And then we think we're doing well. And some trial comes along and we soon find out that we're back to square one. Jacob, in this time of adversity, cries out, All these things are against me. Does this sound like a man who has the title? Prince with God? Does it sound like the words of a man who's living in the will of God and in submission to God's will? And yet, how often have they been the words of our lips? Or maybe even the secret thoughts of our heart? When something comes our way in life and it doesn't go quite as we want it to, maybe when some trouble or trial comes upon our physical body. When our homes are plagued with difficulty after difficulty. Whenever we seem to be walking through a thick cloud of darkness. And we can't see that single ray of sunshine. How often have we been guilty of saying like Jacob. All these things are against me. Well let us ask the question this morning. 
Is it really appropriate for a Christian to say all these things are against me? I want to speak on the subject this morning of responding to adversity. Because that's what we have here with Jacob. Jacob here has a situation. His sons want to take their youngest son Benjamin down to Egypt. And he doesn't want it to happen. He's got all these reasons in his head. He can't see that behind the scenes God is working everything out to his good. And in his time of adversity, he thinks everything's against him. And no doubt there's times in my life and your life when we think the same thing. Whenever we think everything's going against me here today. Whenever you and I fail to see that God is working behind the scenes. Dear friend, we need to learn. Always, even if you're here and you're as old as Jacob was, 130 years old, we always need to be learning. This isn't just a message for young converts or new converts. It's a message for old ones too. Remember, Jacob was an old convert at this stage. And he still had to learn this lesson. And dear friend, we need to learn how to respond to adversity. Three things this morning about responding to adversity. First of all, we must remember where our peace is found. We must remember where our peace is found. And let me say, first of all, that our peace is found in salvation. Colossians 1 verse 20 says that Christ, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself. Where will you and I find peace? Where will we have peace? How will we have peace and contentment in our souls? We will only have peace and contentment in our souls by experiencing the salvation of God. We will not find peace and contentment in running out and enjoying all the pleasures of the world in the immorality in all the fornications of this world, they will not bring us peace. In fact, the problem with the pleasures of this world is you have to keep going back to them. You ask the man who started taking his first drink whether that brought him peace on that one occasion. He'll say no, he had to keep going back. Ask the one who's hooked on drugs today whether they ever regret taking their first needle or their first pill. And they'll say yes, I regret it. Because there's no peace to be found in the carnal pleasures of this world. The only peace that you and I will ever experience in our souls is peace with God. And that's through the blood of the cross. You see dear friend. The relationship we have with God is the most important thing in this world. And we need it to be a peaceful relationship. We need our sins to be forgiven. And it's only Christ that can do that. So dear friend as believers this day. We must remember that our peace is found in salvation. Our peace was found at the cross. Whenever Jesus Christ died for our sins. He gave unto us peace. Peace with God. And if we have peace with God. Is the greatest trouble in life not overcome. The problem of our sin. I know there will be things that come and beset us in our lives, upon our bodies, in our homes, in our workplace, in our community. But dear friend, those things are so minor and insignificant. Whenever we take a step back and see that the greatest peace has already been granted to us. And it was granted in our salvation. The apostle said in Romans 8, If God be for us, who can be against us? 
We must remember our peace is found in salvation. But we must also remember our peace is found in trusting the sovereignty of God. In Psalm 115 verse 3, the psalmist says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. You see, sometimes we don't have peace and contentment in our life because we want our will to be done. Because whenever we come to pray, instead of following what the Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray and saying, Thy will be done, we come and say, Lord, I want my will to be done. And whenever the Lord doesn't do our will, uh, then we get angry and then we get snappy and then we complain about God and then we say, All these things are against me. But dear friend, a believer is one who submits to the sovereignty of God, that God is working everything out according to his own glory and purpose. And we must submit to the sovereignty of God. We must also submit to God's providences in our lives. In the Old Testament we read of Eli the priest. And he had two wicked sons. Hophni and Phinehas. And God revealed to Samuel. That he was going to destroy these men. And what did Eli do? Well he didn't come along and get down on his knees and say. Lord spare these two evil and wicked sons of mine. He didn't do it. Eli said in 1 Samuel 3.18, It is the Lord. Let him do what so let him do what seemeth him good. Eli didn't try to change the will of God. He submitted to God's providential dealings in his life and in the lives of his sons. And dear friends, sometimes submission to the will of God can be the hardest thing that we have to learn. In life. We must surrender. To God's will. Romans 8.28. Says and we know. That all things work together. For good. To them that love God. To them who are the called. According to his purpose. It doesn't say all things work together. For our bad. All things work together to make us miserable. No. We know that all things work together for good. To them that love God. God was working things out in Jacob's life for his good. Jacob just couldn't see it at the time. He thought, well, from my perspective of this situation, from the power that I'm able to exert in this situation, I think it's against me. But God was working to provide food for Jacob and for his children and for his grandchildren. Jacob just couldn't see it. Maybe there's a circumstance in your life today, dear friend. Or maybe it's coming upon you tomorrow. And you can't see the good out of it. You can't see how it could possibly end in a a way that's benefiting you and glorifying God. Well, dear friend, you and I, we're not called to see the future. We're not called to know what happens tomorrow or the next week. If that was the case... I was going to say we'd do the lottery, but we wouldn't do the lottery as Christians. If we knew what was going to happen tomorrow, dear friend, it wouldn't make us any happier. You and I, we're not called to know the future. You and I are called to surrender to God's will and say, Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So dear friend, let us be those who remember where our peace is found. Our peace is found in our salvation. We have peace with God through the blood of the cross. Let us submit to the sovereignty of God, to his providences and to his will. But secondly here today, we're to remember where our peace is found, but we're also to resist temptation. And let me say, first of all, we're to resist the temptation to murmur or complain. And that's very hard to do, isn't it? Because it's one of our favourite hobbies, murmuring and complaining. Maybe America's different, but I know it's a favourite pastime of those in Northern Ireland and in Scotland as well. We, We enjoy nothing more than murmuring or complaining. But I have to tell you, dear friends, Uh, that that such behavior displeases God and aggrieves God. Think of the disciples. Whenever they were on the ship with Christ in Mark 4, they brought a terrible accusation against him. They said, and and he, Mark 4, 38, and Christ was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, just think of the circumstances here. The disciples are out in the sea. The ship is being tossed about. There's water coming in overboard. These men are struggling to keep the ship aright. And Christ is asleep. And they're looking at him. And they're thinking, he doesn't care that we're struggling here. He doesn't care that water's coming into the ship. He doesn't care that we're all going to drown. He's there sleeping, completely oblivious to all that's going on. But is that right? Does the great God of the universe slumber and sleep? Did Christ not care what was happening in that ship? Was Christ not in control of what was happening in that ship? I tell you, he was. But the disciples couldn't see that. They couldn't see that in that ship with them was one who was controlling that storm. How little did they feel whenever Christ stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves. And they all just stopped like that. How little did they feel? How embarrassed were they for their murmuring and their complaining? Whenever Moses was growing up in the house of Pharaoh, of course he would have knew that he was different. He didn't look like an Egyptian. He looked like a Hebrew. And he's maybe wondering, why have I been brought up in this house? Why did Pharaoh's daughter rescue me from a basket in the in the river? And then as he grew up and he heard the history as to how Pharaoh had ordered all the Hebrews to be killed, he realized God's sovereign hand in it all. Well, dear friend, we must resist temptation to murmur or complain. We must resist temptation to say, all these things are against me. Because, dear friend, God is working everything out to our good and to his eternal glory. We must resist temptation to murmur. We must also resist temptation to try and take control. And how we like to be in control. How we don't like things to happen uh, that are beyond uh, our control. We like to be in charge. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ was arrested in Gethsemane, there's one disciple who tried to take control of the situation. Peter took a sword out of its holder and he attacked one of the servants. John 18 verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. 
The servant's name was Malchus. So Peter here decided, I'm going to take control. These people think they're going to arrest my Lord. Who do they think they are? And we might say, well, that's a very valiant stand. We certainly might not have been as brave to do anything like that, to take out a sword and fight an army. But Peter was. He tried to take control of the situation. But then Christ said to him, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? The Lord was effectively saying to Peter, Peter, you don't know what you're doing. Peter, you think you're taking control of the situation? You think you're trying to defend me and protect me and advance my cause? But Peter, you're actually working against it because this has been planned by the Father and by me that I must take the cup and I must drink it. Sometimes we are called to take control of situations. Other times... We just have to let the situation run its course because the Lord's in it and he's behind it. As much as it may seem to us at the time that it's maybe going against what we think is right and proper, we must resist temptation to take control of things that are the Lord's. We must also resist temptation to be discouraged in our relationship with God. In Psalm 42, verse 11, the psalmist says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. It's so easy, isn't it, to be discouraged and downcast. And we're such creatures that we might start the day off brightly and wonderfully, and then by lunchtime we might be the most depressed people on the face of the planet just within us it's our nature and so often whenever circumstances go our way we get some obnoxious person phoning us and uh, giving us trouble and then we're driving down the road and everybody seems to try to put us in the ditch everything might uh, go against us and and we might uh, not verbalize it but we might say in our heart well well god's not looking after me today he's not helping me today he's not with me why are all these things happening to me today And we might be discouraged in our relationship with God. But dear friend. Those days when we're cast down. Those days when our souls are disquieted. What does the psalmist say to do? Hope in God. Remember your hope is in him. Your soul's salvation. You have committed your life unto him. And he has saved you and redeemed you. And praise him. For that's what we're called to do. Resist temptation to be discouraged in your relationship with God. And let me say fourthly, resist temptation to backslide. Because it's so easy to do. Peter took that great step of faith, didn't he? One foot out of the boat onto the water. The other one out, he's walking on water. His eyes are fixed on Christ. Everything's going so well. And then all of a sudden he hears the wind. Out of the corner of the eye he sees the wave. And his eyes are taken away from Christ. And he's looking at everything around him. And before he knows it, his feet are going under. And dear friend, when you and I take our eyes off Christ, when we start to focus upon the things of this world and seek to find joy and contentment and seek to try and control them, and we're not looking at Christ, we will backslide. And let none of us sit here today and think that we're above backsliding because it's possible with any of us. 
resist the temptation. To murmur, to take control, to be discouraged in your relationship with God, and to backslide. The most important thing you have in your life is your relationship with the Lord. And we must guide it and guard it at all costs. So this brings me on to my third and final point this morning. We're to remember where our peace is found. We're to resist temptation. And thirdly, we're to resolve to walk with God. So how do we do this? How do we walk with God? I remember as a young convert, I was only converted a couple of weeks. And I was listening to a message uh, on Sermon Audio by Bob Jones the third, And it was entitled, How's Your Walk? And it's a sermon I'll never forget because it's a question that I'm called to ask myself very, very often. How's your walk? Well, dear friend, how's your walk this morning? How's your walk with God? Have you commenced a walk with God yet? Are you walking with him this day? How's your walk? Well, let us resolve to walk with God. Four things I want to leave with you about resolving to walk with God. First of all, we must trust God at all times. That sounds very easy and very simple. Sounds like beginner stuff. But dear friend, it's something that every believer struggles with. We might trust God some of the time, 90% of the time, but then there might be those times when we forget to trust him or we fail to trust him. Well, David, who was king of Israel, David, who had many duties and responsibilities, said in Psalm 56, verse 3, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. We're to trust God in the times when we're afraid, and times even whenever things seem to be going well. Think of Elijah. Elijah trusted God. And face-to-face confrontations with Ahab, that king had the power to kill him. Elijah trusted God when he battled the prophets of Baal and he called fire down from heaven. Elijah trusted God at some of the scariest times of his life. But whenever a wicked woman called Jezebel raised her voice against Elijah and threatened him, what did he do? He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat under a juniper tree and he said, Lord, I've had enough. Take me home as if God was able to deal with the prophets of Baal he was able to deal with Ahab but there's a woman that God can't deal with maybe sometimes us men folk think that too Elijah failed to trust God even when that wicked woman Jezebel lifted her voice against him he trusted God through so many other times why not that time because he was human like you and me Dear friends, we're to trust God at all times. Secondly, we're to live to glorify God. And again, it's easier said than done. Think of Daniel in Babylon. He could have easily compromised whenever he was commanded to pray to King Darius. But he didn't do it. He prayed faithfully to God. And the end result was he was cast into the lion's den. It didn't matter that the threat of his life was there. It didn't matter that 
the world was looking him to stop praying to God. No, he was faithful and he lived to glorify God and he didn't care about the consequences. And dear friends, we must live to glorify God regardless of who laughs at us, regardless of who spits in our face, regardless of what people say about us publicly or behind us, behind our back. We must live with a single eye to glorify God. Think of David. Oh, he took food to his brothers as they were awaiting the battle of the Philistines. He could have took one look at that big giant Goliath and said, well, I'm away back to my sheep. I'll leave these brave soldiers to it. But he didn't do it. David says, who is this man to blaspheme the name of my God? And David, that little shepherd boy, went and fought a mighty giant because he lived to glorify God. Moses could have stayed in the wilderness looking after those sheep instead of leading Israel out of Egypt. But he didn't do it. Mordecai could have bowed down to Haman for a quiet life. But he didn't do it. Peter and John could have stopped preaching the gospel for fear of their lives when they were threatened and put in prison. They didn't do it. We, dear friends, are called to glorify God in whatever circumstances of life he puts us. Or to glorify him. Let me say thirdly here. We're to hand the reins over to God. In Psalm 61. And the verse 2. The psalmist says. From the ends of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock. That is higher than I. Psalm 31 verse 3. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore for thy name's sake lead me. And guide me. And that is the prayer of the Christian. Lord I need led by you. And I need guided by you. Uh, We often sing that hymn don't we. I can't even walk. Without thy holding my hand. And dear friends. If you and I are to have that walk with God. We need to hand everything over to him. Not just. A few things here and there. But our whole life. And this is especially true of our children isn't it? We have a responsibility for them. We have a duty of care to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're told to cast them upon the Lord as David says he was cast upon the Lord in Psalm 22. But we're to cast our children unto God. Remembering the promise that he made. Genesis 17 and verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee. And thy seed after thee and their generations. For an everlasting covenant. To be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. If we're to walk with God. He's to lead us. We're not to lead him. Sometimes. We create our own problems in our walk with God. Whenever we sin. Israel were left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because of their sin of unbelief. David's sin of numbering the people brought pestilence into the land. Abraham's impatience caused him to take Hagar to wife and Ishmael to be born. Whenever Isaac was the child of promise. Sometimes by our own sin. And our own selfish actions and desires. We make problems in our walk with God. And maybe 
That's a case in your life today, dear friend. There's a stumbling block in your walk with God. There's something that's hindering you from walking well with God. And you're maybe not sure what it is. But maybe even as you're sitting in the meeting this morning, the Lord's putting his finger upon it. It's this thing in your life. Get rid of it. And your walk with me will be better. Coming to a close here today. Dear friends, in this life we will have adversity. And it will come to us in many different forms. Sickness. Persecutions. Bereavements. Hostilities. The issue isn't what adversity we're going to face. The issue is how will we respond when adversity does come our way. Maybe today you're saying like Jacob, all these things are against me. Whenever what you really need to be saying is the words of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I will maintain mine own ways before him, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. Or maybe the words of Paul in Romans 8 verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Remember the words of Psalm, the psalmist, Psalm 30 verse 5. For his anger endureth but a moment, but in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Oh dear friend, whenever you think that all these things are against you, remember that the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Now you and I might not be able to see the everlasting arms underneath us. We might not be able to see the banner of love over us. But we know they're there. Because the Bible tells us they're there. And this should be enough for us. Because it's in God's word. And if God says his everlasting arms are underneath us. And we don't believe it. Then we're not trusting God's word. And we're not trusting God. I know there's been times in my life and maybe there will be times in the future I hope there isn't whenever I will say like Jacob all these things are against me but dear friend we need to respond to adversity by remembering that our peace is found in Christ we must resist all the temptations that come to murmur against God and we must make it our daily resolve to walk with him. Are you walking with him today? Not asking do you profess to be a believer? I'm asking are you walking with God? Do you know that close and personal and intimate communion with him today? If not, dear friend, get it back. Get it back. Get alone with God. And say, Lord, forgive me. Restore the years, the weeks, the days, whatever it's been. Lord, I want to walk with you again today. Make it your prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thy word teaches and instructs us and Lord, forgive us for all those times 
when we have said like Jacob all these things are against me we know that thy will is perfect and we know that thou will glorify thyself and we pray father that we will be those who know what it is to walk with thee and to exalt thee and magnify thee in our lives we pray that thou will root out those things that are hindering us from enjoying that close intimacy with thee Come, Father, write thy word upon our souls this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.